Uh, the first reading is Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to 10, uh, and can be found in page 968 uh, in the church Bibles. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in hearts, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the second reading is from Acts chapter 1, verse 1 to 8. Uh, It could be found on page 1092 in the Church Bibles. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering... He presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for my gift, my father's promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not to know, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Can I thank Andy for the invitation to be with you today? Um, it's it's a, a real privilege to get a feel of what St. Saviour's is like. Um, I feel like the Queen of Sheba. I, I had heard tales about it, but the half had not been told. And it's been uh, wonderful to meet some of you and, and to, to join in your worship. Um, I should say that I have never actually entered the PowerPoint age, so I'm quite glad that the PowerPoint is not... (laughs) Um, When I was teaching at Trinity College in Bristol, when Andy had the misfortune of being one of my students, I used to use a lot of handouts. Fortunately, you're spared a handout today. Um, It's a pleasure also to see Roxy here. And Roxy, I I shall be thinking about writing the foreword on the train going back to Cambridge tonight because I have to get it in uh, by by Tuesday. (laughs) Um, The subject that was suggested for this evening is is 
peace possible in Israel-Palestine. If this is our question, I have to begin with a short answer, which is bad news. In the short term, I can see little or no hope for a peaceful solution of the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. I fear that the situation is going to get worse before it gets better. And why am I so pessimistic? Briefly, most of the world believes that Israel's occupation of East Jerusalem and the West Bank since the Six-Day War in 1967 is illegal in international law. So every single one of the 200 settlements and the security wall that have been built on the West Bank, every single one is illegal. The United States has been unable or unwilling to put sufficient pressure on Israel to force them to stop building the settlements. And Obama is now powerless to do much during the last months of his presidency. And of course, the new presidential candidates are falling over each other to prove that they are more supportive of Israel than all the other candidates. At a time when the Arab world is tearing itself apart, Israel prides itself on being the only stable democracy in the Middle East and feels free to carry on with its plans to create the greater Israel. So what are we as Christians to think about this conflict as we watch it unfolding before our eyes? What are Christians who are caught up in the conflict thinking and doing? And is there anything that you and I can do? Since this is supposed to be a talk in a service of worship and not a lecture in international politics, I want to begin with two Bible readings, the ones that we've just had. The first is from Matthew chapter 5. You know it very well, the Beatitudes, and this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus explains what it means in very practical terms to live under the kingly rule of God. There are three verses in particular that I want to comment on. The first is verse 5 where Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Do you realize that this is a straight quotation from Psalm 37? Blessed are the meek, for they shall, and if you read your Old Testament, you will probably find, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. In Hebrew, it's haaretz, the promised land. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the promised land. Now, this is one of the only verses in the Gospels, it seems, where Jesus says anything specifically about the promised land. And this is extremely surprising because for first century Jews, the land was extremely important. The Torah, the land, the temple, the chosen people, these were absolutely fundamental pillars of Judaism in the first century. So much so that a, a rabbi at the time said, if you're giving thanks after a meal and you forget to thank God for the land, it doesn't count as a proper grace. Now, if the land was so absolutely fundamental at the time of Jesus, for his audience, for his disciples, why is it that Jesus has so little to say about the land? I suggest 
It's not because he affirmed all the ideas about the land that Jews held at the time, but because he wanted from now on to, for them to understand the land in the context of the coming of the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingly rule of God in and through him. In verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, you and I as good Protestants, of course, think of righteousness as my relationship with God, justification from Romans and all that, us being put in a right relationship with God. But the Greek word dikaiosene can easily be translated justice. And behind the Greek word, there is the Hebrew words for justice. So we could easily translate the verse, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice or they shall be filled. In verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. So here is a situation, this conflict in Israel and Palestine, where I would hope that disciples of Jesus, whether they're Jews, Jewish believers or Arab-Palestinian believers, would be concerned not just to seek for justice, but to be peacemakers, not just to talk about peace, but actually to practice it and bring people together. The second passage is Acts chapter 1. Luke is writing about the period of 40 days after the resurrection and before the ascension, and he says in verse 3 that Jesus was speaking to them about what? About the kingdom of God. And then in verse 6, we're told the disciples asked the question, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Or as the Revised English Bible translates it, to restore the sovereignty of Israel? It's very important that we should understand the thinking behind the disciples when they put this question. They are thinking as typical first century Jews. The Old Testament prophets have looked, had looked forward to return to the land, which began to be fulfilled, of course, in the return from Babylon. But they looked forward, when they had returned to the land, they looked forward to something even greater that God was going to do in the future. Think of Ezekiel's visions of the new temple and all that. God is going to intervene in history and do something very dramatic in the land, in Jerusalem. He's going to establish his kingly rule in the earth so that all the nations can recognize that Yahweh is the Lord. So the Jewish people, in the centuries before the coming of Jesus, had developed these hopes that one day we will have a sovereign, independent Jewish state in the land. They had been ruled by Greeks and now Romans, they had been living under foreign rule for centuries, and they're hoping that one day God is going to enable them to establish a sovereign, independent Jewish state in the land. So that's the thinking in the minds of the disciples. Jesus, now that you've been raised from the dead, surely now is the time for you to establish this sovereign, independent state in the land where we can obey the law and be faithful. And how does Jesus respond? His answer comes in verses 7 and 8. And it's very crucial that we understand how these two verses are related to each other. And we have to recognize that there are two main ways of interpreting the reply of Jesus. 
The first interpretation goes like this. You remember what the words of Jesus are. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and so on. So according to this interpretation, Jesus is, accepts the idea in the mind of the disciples. Yes, one day it's going to happen, but it's not for you to know. In other words, this first interpretation says that Jesus is simply correcting their idea about the timing. It's going to happen. It's sure going to happen because it's been predicted in the Old Testament, but you don't know when it's going to happen. The second interpretation, which I would follow, is that Jesus is not only challenging the disciples' idea about the timing, but he's challenging the very idea itself. And I sense a kind of exasperation almost in the mind of Jesus, in the answer of Jesus. Are you still so dumb that you still have not understood that the kingdom of God is not something literal, it's not something tied to the Jewish people, and it's not tied to the land. And then immediately in the next verse, he goes on to give them a different idea of the kingdom of God. It's not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be met by witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. In other words, the kingdom of God has begun to come through me and through my death and resurrection. And now you're to take the good news about me to the ends of the earth. That's the coming of the kingdom of God. It's not the establishment of a sovereign, independent Jewish state in the land. So these would be my two biblical starting points. And if this is where I'm starting from, how do we begin to think in a Christian way about the conflict? How do we apply our biblical interpretation and our theology to these very thorny political problems? I'm going to suggest simply five basic principles. One, we need to understand the nature of, con of the conflict. Here it's extremely important that we understand the history of the conflict and I am saddened that when I read many of the Christian books of prophecy interpreting the Middle East they always start with the Bible and they have a very very sketchy understanding of the history of the conflict. In the modern period the conflict goes back to 1880 when as a result of anti-semitism in Europe more and more Jews wanted to emigrate to live in Palestine. When that immigration started, the Jewish community was 5% of the population. They had been rooted there since the first century. There had been small communities in Jerusalem, in Tiberias, and other places. But they were 5% of the population. But more and more come in, and you can imagine that the Palestinians begin to feel anxious. The Jewish settlers take over land, sometimes very, very legally, sometimes very illegally. And the Palestinians begin to understand that this Jewish community wants to grow in numbers until it becomes a majority and until it actually takes over political power. Can you begin to understand 
what the Palestinian, Palestinians were feeling and why they have reacted in the way they have to the Zionist movement. So the root of the problem, I suggest, has to do with dispossession. The root of the problem is not an eternal conflict between the descendants of Abraham, between Ishmael and, and Esau. And Islam is not the root of the problem, as many people, including Christians, are saying today. The Islamic dimension has become more and more important with Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran and ISIS. Yes, but the root of the problem is not Islam. Point number two, political problems require political solutions. I confess that I'm saddened when I hear Christians say, this is such an awful problem, such an intractable problem, that there won't be any peace until Jesus comes again. If we've seen the Berlin Wall come down, if we've seen the end of apartheid, if we've seen some kind of peace established between Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland, is it really beyond the wit of human beings to work out some solutions, some practical solutions to this particular political problem? And dare I say that people of faith, whether they're Christians, Muslims, or Jews, have to, in a sense, put their faith and their scriptures and their religion on one side and try and deal with the problem in its own terms and work out a workable political solution. And of course, I think I would also want to add that that solution has to be on the basis of international law. If there were to be any settlement in the next year or two, it would, wouldn't be equal partners sitting around the table working out a compromise. It would be a solution imposed by one party, the most powerful party, Israel, with the support of its backer, the United States, a solution that is imposed on the weaker party. Number three, Israel faces impossible dilemmas. What is Israel supposed to do with Gaza? You remember the war two years ago and four years ago? It's been described as the largest open air prison in the world. Israel has withdrawn its settlements, but it still controls all the borders, all the natural resources, every person coming in and out of the area. And what about the occupation of the West Bank? The United Nations Security Council in 1967 passed a resolution calling on the Arabs to cease their hostilities and calling on Israel to withdraw from the territories that had been occupied in the fighting, and Israel has consistently refused to do so. So Israel is left with an incredible dilemma, an impossible dilemma. What is it supposed to do with the West Bank and Gaza? Is it supposed to annex the West Bank? But if it does annex the West Bank and Palestinians become citizens in a democratic state, it won't be long before the Arab majority votes out the Jewish government. So here we have this awful dilemma, one state or two states. But in a sense, we already have one state. 
and many people, including people in the American administration, are beginning to use the A word to describe what Israel has established. It is now being openly called an apartheid state. So here we have this problem. Is Israel to annex the territory and make it all one state, or are they to recognize a Palestinian state? But would that Palestinian state be viable, and does it make any sense with 200 settlements and Israel controlling all the water resources and all the main roads throughout the territory? Can Israel be both a democratic state and a Jewish state? Many of them would want it to be called a Jewish state, the Jewish state, and are insisting that the Palestinians recognize Israel as the Jewish state. But how can it be a Jewish state when 20% of Israeli citizens are Arabs? Have you got that? 20% of the citizens of Israel who have passports in Hebrew, they're not Jewish, they're Arabs. So how can these Arabs, citizens of Israel, easily accept the existence of Israel as a Jewish state. So there's number three. Israel faces impossible dilemmas. Now, some people would say, oh, but it's the Palestinians who are to blame because they have been so bloody-minded and not been willing to accept what the Israelis are doing. On the other hand, we could say that these are dilemmas of Israel's own making. It is what Israel has done on the West Bank that has created these intolerable problems for themselves. Number four, the world needs to be involved. It's no longer a question of getting Palestinians and Israelis to sit round the table to negotiate with each other as if they're equal partners. The world powers have been involved in this region for decades, for centuries. It was in the 19th century that European power started being, getting involved in Palestine. And I was mentioning in the earlier service, our own responsibility as British people for the Balfour Declaration of 1917. And next year we'll be celebrating the centenary of that. We have a huge measure of responsibility for allowing this problem to develop and having promoted policies that were largely in our own interests. Why, one of the reasons, incidentally, do you realize that one of the reasons why Britain was so supportive of the idea of having Jewish people living in Palestine was because they wanted a friendly power on the banks of the Suez Canal. Why? To guard, to guard this lifeline to the jewel of the empire in India. If we support the Jews now, they will guard the Suez Canal for us. So world powers have been involved. And Britain had the mandate for Palestine. And when the potato became so hot, the problem was handed over to the United Nations. And gradually, the United States has become the main sponsor of the state of Israel. So here we have a situation where the world needs to be involved. You and I, in a sense... Uh, are involved because our governments are involved. And humanly speaking, a great deal depends on the United States. 
When Obama came into office, many people were extremely, extremely optimistic. He himself seemed to be extremely well informed about the whole conflict and seemed to be determined to work out a solution. Partly because of the lobby from Israel, from the Jewish lobby, and dare I add, the lobby from maybe 50, 70, 100 million evangelical Christians in the United States, it has been almost impossible for him to move this conflict substantially forward. But so much depends on the amount of pressure that, Israel, that the United States is prepared to put on Israel. And we've seen so far that it hasn't been prepared to put that pressure to stop the settlements. But there is evidence that opinion is changing. Friends of mine who have spoken on campuses in the United States suggest that more and more young people are becoming more aware of the justice issues and are willing to recognize the apartheid situation that has been created. So that more and more people, as they look at this conflict in terms of international law and human rights, may begin to raise their voices. And if world opinion had some effect in ending apartheid, perhaps it may also have some effect in ending this conflict. And my fifth principle, Christians need our support in all they are doing. Andy, how much longer have I got? Ten minutes? Five minutes? Five minutes. Okay, very quickly. I want to tell you about ten people and institutions. These are Christians on the ground in Israel, Palestine, doing something very, very significant. Musalaha is the Arabic word for reconciliation. What they do is to bring... Arab Christians and Jewish Messianic believers together. They take them out into the desert for 48 hours, riding camels, cooking together, looking into each other's faces, hearing each other's stories, beginning to understand each other and each other's histories and each other's stories. There's real reconciliation going on there. It's at a very, very low-key low level, but there's something very significant there. Messianic fellowships, do you know that there are about 200 Messianic fellowships all over Israel? Some of them have only five or six members, some have 200 members. And one hopes that they are concerned about political and social issues. Bethlehem Bible College has been going for 20 or 30 years now, and it trains pastors, youth workers, it also trains tour guides, and it's recently established a center for justice and peace. And they have also held three conferences called Christ at the Checkpoint. Uh, they're held every two years, and the next one will be in two weeks' time, and I hope to be there. And I can tell you that it's incredibly moving to hear Palestinian Christians and Jewish believers talking about how they are trying to practice the Sermon on the Mount in that situation. The Holy Land Trust, set up by somebody called Sami Awad. Sami has been working at the grassroots level, on the West Bank especially, trying to build up civil society from the bottom up in the hope that if ever there is a Palestinian entity or state, it will be able to function. 
And Sammy told me some time ago that he had actually spent time with the leaders of, with some of the leaders of Hamas. Sammy and his organization is totally committed to peaceful non-resistance. And he's been teaching people in Hamas the principles of peaceful non-resistance, peaceful non-violent resistance. Gaza. A good friend of mine, John Angle, an Anglican clergyman, has been visiting Gaza for many years. Uh, there's a hospital in Gaza that's run by the Anglican Church, and there's a Baptist school, and there's a branch of Bethlehem Bible College, uh, which operates in Gaza. John has been teaching courses there, and at the end of April, I hope to spend a week in Bethlehem putting together a course about Islam and relating to Muslims that will be taught in Bethlehem Bible College in Nazareth and also in Gaza. Sabil is an organization that is set up for what they call Palestinian liberation theology, and its founder, Naim Atik, has had a lot of influence all over the world, helping people to, to think theologically and biblically about the conflict. Christian Peacemakers Team, CPT, Every week, every week I got an email from them with photographs. Here are young people from Europe, from America, who, who spend a few months, six months at a time, escorting Palestinian children past Jewish settlements to their own schools and reporting instances where there has been bullying on the part of Israeli soldiers. The Christian Peacemakers Team. The Evangelical Accompaniment Program in Palestine and Israel, EAPPI, it's organized by the World Council of Churches and, and the Quakers. They send people out on placements for three months, six months at a time. They live in Jewish areas. They live in Palestinian areas. They live with the people. They, they stand at the checkpoints and see what is happening and, and, and report particular incidents of concern. The Amos Trust that I gather many of you know about because Garth Hewitt was founded it. One of the things they do is send people out to rebuild Palestinian homes that have been bulldozed. And, and lastly, there's Embrace. Do you remember the Bible lands? Uh, do you remember the carol sheets that we used for many, many years produced by Bible lands, which is now called Embrace the Middle East? They have many, many projects all over the Middle East, but especially on the West Bank and in Israel and, and, and Gaza. One of their projects over Christmas uh, was that if you pay 15 pounds, it will pay for an olive tree to be planted on the West Bank in Palestinian land to help it not be occupied by the, and taken over by the Israeli, Israeli government. So there are 10 examples of people on the ground, Christians on the ground who deserve our support. And why is all of this important? This is a conflict in the lands of the Bible that we're reading every day and every Sunday. The Bible has a lot to say about the Jewish people. And I hope we are concerned about the Jewish people. Have you read so much in the, the media recently about anti-Semitism? Just today in the Sunday Times, there's an article saying that the government is going to be very, very tough on any councils or universities that join the boycott and divestment campaign. And the reason, because they say it encourages anti-Semitism. I'm sure we all want to condemn anti-Semitism. 
But if we're concerned for the Jewish people, we must also be concerned about the roots of anti-Semitism and why it is growing. This is a conflict which is still one of the most intractable conflicts in the world. It's a conflict that is at the heart of the conflicts of the Middle East, and it's a conflict that affects the whole world and is likely to continue for several years. It's also a challenge to Christians. What does the gospel have to say about this particular conflict? And can Christians be concerned and work out practical ways forward? And let me add also that it's extremely relevant in our outreach to Muslims, because for many Muslims, unquestioning support of Israel and all its policies has been and continues to be a major stumbling block for the gospel in the minds of many Muslims. I end by reminding you of the two Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice stroke righteousness. And blessed are the peacemakers. Thank you, Colin, very much, and, and thank you for your response and appreciation for all that he's uh, given us this evening. We'll close very shortly, um, and I'd like to close in a few moments with uh, some brief prayers, uh, and we'll sing in conclusion. Um, but I just wonder if before then, there might be just two or three questions that um, you would like to um, waft Colin's direction uh, for just some in initial response. Let's just take a few seconds just to sort of touch base with the, the person, a couple of people around you, and uh, just consider whether there's a question you'd like to, to offer. And then uh, I'll ask Colin to stand up again and give it his best. Here we go. Here's number one. Um, I find this quite difficult. Um, uh, it's around the anti-Semitism question. How easy it is it to have an open debate about the differing opinions with Jewish people without being accused of being anti-Semitic? Um, one, one short answer would be that my own study of the hist in my own study of the history and the politics, the most helpful writers I found are not Arab writers, but Jewish writers. So many of the, my own analysis of the history is largely based on the writings of Jewish historians. Now, are we going to accuse them of anti-Semitism? Um, that, that, that would be 
the first point that I, I, I would answer. I, I would also want to say, what do you mean by anti-Semitism? And the problem is that, well, let's just go back a bit. Christians have enormous responsibility for the development of anti-Semitism over the centuries. But in the 19th century, anti-Semitism took a different turn because of nationalism and because of the Enlightenment. But what exactly do we mean by anti-Semitism? Is it irrational hatred of the Jewish people? And the problem is that anybody who says anything critical about the state of Israel and its policies is labeled as anti-Semitic. And I think we have to say, look, you cannot play that trump card. You, you cannot dismiss every criticism of, what, of, of Israel and, what, and its policies by saying that it's anti-Semitic. What, what we're talking about is international law. Um, Israel has consistently refused to obey international law. We went to war in, in Kuwait to force Saddam Hussein to comply with the Security Council resolution, but we won't lift a finger to support, to force Israel to support a similar Security Council resolution. We're talking about international law and human rights. We're not talking about prejudice against Jewish people or irrational hatred of Jews. Let's look at what has actually happened, what is actually happening on the ground and, and, and make judgments about it. And please, let's not use the anti-Semitic card as a simple way of defending Israel against criticism. Forgive me if I'm expressing myself strongly, but uh, um, that, that's, that, that, that would be part of my answer. First of all, I want to say thank you for such a, a clear and uh, informative uh, talk. Uh, something that's very close to my heart. I spent some time in Bethlehem 18 months ago. I was really, really moved by my experience of the people there. You began by saying you don't think peace is possible in the short term. I just wonder, do you have hope for that situation in the sort of... You know, are there any signs of hope you can see other than the individuals that we've talked about working for reconciliation? Well, uh, as I said, and I, I think... I think Northern Ireland, um, the ending of apartheid, give us some hope, but it's a long-term business. And it's, it's, humanly speaking, I would say it's only when more and more young people in the United States become informed about what is actually happening and become concerned about the justice issues that public opinion is going to change. So um, I, I don't think so. there's a quick fix. And at the moment, of course, in the earlier session, I was talking about proxy wars. Uh, and, and, and part of the problem is that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is just one of many conflicts in the Middle East. And we have the United States and the EU on the one hand ranged against Russia and, uh, and, and uh, Iran on the other. So Israel is, is part of this huge game of nations that is being played out. So it, it's going to be a long, a, lo a long business. And who can see an end to the Syrian conflict, which, which is also relevant? One more question. 
Uh, I suppose this is a bit of a follow-on question from that last question. Uh, you, you mentioned that you don't see much hope for, uh, I suppose, a peaceful resolution in the short term. But I was just wondering, in your view, what would a uh, solution look like, I suppose, in, in the long term? What would a solution potentially look like? Well, very, very briefly, for many years now, it's been a choice between the two-state solution, the state of Israel and a state, Palestinian state alongside it. A choice between the two-state solution and the one-state solution. For many years, majority of people in, in the world supported the two-state solution, and, and I certainly did. In recent years, I have come to believe that, that the two-state solution is no longer feasible. Because of all the facts that Israel has created on the ground in the West Bank, it is, it is very hard to see how there could be a meaningful, viable, independent Palestinian state. So it seems to me that Israel's actions have undermined the possibility of the two-state solution. And what Israel has actually created already is the one-state solution. And, the, and as I said before, most, many people are beginning to recognize that it, they, they have created an apartheid system with as one law for Palestinians and one for, 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 for Israelis. Um, so, uh, uh, and, and of course, is, Israel cannot tolerate the idea of one state because this one state would have to be a binational state with a Palestinian side and, 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 a, and, 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 a, and a Jewish side, like the different parts of, of Belgium or, or Canada, a, a, a binational state, or it would need to be one unified state in which Jews and Arabs, Christians and Muslims, uh, and Jews were all equal citizens. And that undoes the whole Zionist idea that there needs to be a Jewish homeland, a Jewish state. If it's a secular democratic state, it, isn't, it can no longer be a Jewish state. Do you see what I meant earlier by the impossible dilemmas which seems to be Israel has created for itself? So, as I understand it, the only way forward, uh, because the two-state solution is so totally unworkable and unrealistic now, is to have some kind of, 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 of one state, but preferably some kind of binational state. <laughs>